Someone asked me once, what are you doing when you're sitting in that chair? And I said, I'm praying. And they said, what are you praying? And I said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, which is my constant prayer. It was Spurgeon's prayer as well, just acknowledging that men can say nothing of importance apart from the Holy Spirit. He must do His work. We'll be in John chapter 3, if you'd open your Bibles to John 3. Last week we talked about the first eight verses of John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Maybe he's embarrassed to be seen with Jesus, but regardless, he comes to Him at night. Really, reflection of his own heart. His heart is stuck in the dark at night. And Jesus teaches him that he cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. This is the new birth. This is regeneration. And it's the first requirement for anyone to come to Christ is that their hearts are renewed. All have to be regenerated if they're going to be saved. And it's because all descendants of Adam and Eve, all biological descendants of Adam and Eve, that's everyone, remain under his their guilt and their sin and our own sin and guilt as well. We're all by nature children of wrath, conceived in sin spiritually blind, spiritually dead, without hope, without God in the world. And the new birth happens. Our eyes are opened. We see our sin. We see our need of a Savior. And this is the lesson that I spoke about last week, and it's the same lesson that Jesus taught Nicodemus last week. The new birth. It's replacing of a stony heart with a soft heart. It's bringing the dead soul to life. It's the circumcision of the heart by God. It's a work of God on a man. Apart from any inclination or effort of the man. And it's always, always resulting in faith and repentance. It results in conversion. To have your eyes open for the first time is to see your sin and misery for the first time. To see your need of a Savior and the glory of Jesus. So Jesus told this this teacher of Israel, you can't can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So last week, Jesus taught Nicodemus about regeneration. This week, we're going to see that Jesus teaches Nicodemus about his justification, or should we say his salvation, and how this comes about. So I'll be reading from John chapter 3. Remember that this is the inspired Word of God. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Every word is true and accurate. It's inerrant. It's perfect. And it's here for you this morning. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? John 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit 
the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, it seems often that we are wearying You with our prayers for understanding and wisdom. And yet, this is, again, our situation. We must come to You. We must ask for wisdom. Because spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. We need Your Spirit to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to unstop our ears, that we might receive this Word of God for us this morning. That You might do Your work within us, be glorified in the preaching of Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I recently read of a, a CEO of a company, a restaurant chain, who went undercover to the restaurants. You may have heard of, of this happening. The idea is that you have this entire chain all through the country, and you don't know exactly how each restaurant is being managed. So the CEO puts on clothes that someone serving might wear, or someone bussing tables might wear, just goes and gets a, a job at the restaurant, one of his restaurants. He goes incognito to the restaurant to see what's happening. This particular article uh, was highlighting the story of the CEO of Checkers Restaurants. Uh, he went to a particular restaurant and found that all of the employees were absolutely distraught because the manager was just an absolute taskmaster. He screamed and belittled people. He, he ridiculed those. He used uh, loud voices to get his things done. He was abusive. The CEO, again, pretending to be a busboy, pulls the manager aside and just asks a question, why are you so abusive? Why do you scream and yell? And of course, he received some of the wrath of this manager as well. At which time, the CEO revealed who he was. He immediately fired the manager and he closed the store for the night until they could find someone else. He saw the unrepentant attitude of this manager and decided that action must be taken. Well, it reminded me that Christ, when He came to earth, He hid His glory very often from those whom He ministered to. Um, and then He acted with complete authority at all times. 
Um, it's one of the ways that if you look closely, you see His glory and His attitude toward those whom He speaks. So although Nicodemus did not know maybe that he was God, Nicodemus was feeling the authority and the weight of the Son of God during the conversation that he had. The title of the sermon is The Mystery of the Cross. First, we'll see that the teacher goes to school. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, is getting schooled by the Master. Secondly, we'll look at the authority of Jesus to do this. And thirdly, at the mystery that Jesus reveals to Nicodemus. So what do we mean when we say the teacher gets schooled or the teacher goes to school? Jesus had already told Nicodemus that he must be born again or born from above to see the kingdom of God. And unless he is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So put yourself for just a moment in the, the kind of the pharisaical sandals of Nicodemus. Just think about it from his perspective for just a moment. His whole life he has believed that being a Jew is probably the most important thing about being right with God. You must be born, literally born, of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chosen people of God. This is the most important part of being God's person, being God's child. And he's taught others as well that not only do you have to be born Jewish, most likely you should be born Jewish, but then you should also submit to God by obeying His law, by having a, a real obedience to the written laws of God. Nicodemus has probably never thought that being a child of God, being in the kingdom of God, had anything to do with a new birth. And now this rabbi, Jesus, who kind of has come out of nowhere, begins telling him that this is an absolute requirement for any who would come to Christ. It's, it's a requirement. You must be born again. You must be born above, of above by the Spirit. So we start with Nicodemus' response in verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? The, the verb be in the Hebrew can also mean to, to become or to come about or how can this happen? He's saying, how can this new birth happen? How can this be? What are you talking about, Yeshua? And as we saw last week as well, I believe that Nicodemus is either offended and, and, and bristling in pride, which is probably the case, probably also a little confused. But the result is he's, he's having trouble. He's struggling to receive this word. Calvin speaks of Nicodemus in this passage in this way. He says, there is no greater obstacle to us than our own pride. That is, we always wish to be wise beyond what is proper. And therefore, we reject with diabolical pride everything that is not explained to our reason. And this is surely the case with Nicodemus. I think it's also important, you know, Jesus is teaching the Word of God to Nicodemus and Nicodemus bristles. And we're all pointing at him in our hearts right now saying, that's Nicodemus. I would never act that way. You need to consider your own hearts. We all need to consider our own hearts. 
Especially when you hear truth. When you hear Christ speaking truth to your heart. How do you hear truth? Well, you read the Scriptures. You hear the preaching of the Word of God. You hear the teaching of God's Word. You're reading every day the Scriptures in private. Do you hear the Word of God through a critical and prideful lens? Or, when you come to hear the preaching of the Word, do you, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, attend upon it with diligence and preparation and prayer? You say, how do I prepare for the preaching of God's Word? You know the text. So you read the text. Go to the text and read it before you come to worship. And prayer, you should be praying for the preaching of the Word of God. You should be praying for me as the preacher that I might have wisdom and boldness. And then you receive it with faith and love. You lay it up in your hearts and you practice it in your lives as if you were hearing the very words of God. This is difficult for us, especially as Americans. Um, it's wonderful, and I'm not saying this because I feel unduly criticized. Uh, I welcome feedback. But as Americans, I remember my whole life sitting in the pews, listening to preaching, and being like Nicodemus. Just, uh, do I like this or not? No, I don't like that. I'm rejecting that part. I'll accept that part. No, I don't like that part. If you believe truly that your teachers and your preachers are sent to you by Christ as under-shepherds responsible for shepherding your own souls, then you will pray for them to have wisdom and understanding and power from on high. And you'll know that it's the Spirit of God who is speaking to you from this pulpit. God does speak to you the way Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. He speaks to you His truth every day that you read and study His Scriptures and every day that you hear the preaching of the Word of God. This frail jar of clay, whoever it is that occupies this pulpit, this broken vessel of humanity that stands before you, is the one that Christ has commissioned to speak the words of God to you. And such is the mystery and wonder of preaching. Christ has disguised Himself. He's hidden His glory from Nicodemus. And He speaks to Nicodemus with great power and authority. And as much as the Spirit of Christ lives in a preacher, in a sense, Christ has disguised Himself and come to you to preach the Word of God to you. If you receive this, then... Unlike Nicodemus, this knowledge will soften the soil of your prideful hearts by the Holy Spirit to receive the Word of God with humility, to attend upon it with diligence and preparation and prayer, to receive it with faith and love and lay it up in your hearts and practice it in your lives. But this is not the response of Nicodemus. He seems to be bristling with pride. He says to Jesus, how can this possibly be? How can this happen? How can this be true when he hears the truth proclaimed to his ears? And Jesus' response is a sharp rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I remember when I was in seminary, the chancellor of all of the campuses, all nine campuses, 
as still, it's uh, Dr. Legan Duncan. And I remember him coming to our particular seminary, our little seminary in Washington, D.C. And he was going to teach one class, the worship class. He teaches this class to every campus, to every class. He wants to be involved in the lives of his students, no matter what campus they're in. And this is the class he came to teach. And we were all very excited. And it's to, to meet and know Dr. Duncan. He's not a perfect man, of course. We all have blind spots and errors, but he's a godly man. He loves the Word of God. He loves Jesus. And he is an expert in the Scriptures. He's devoted his life to this text. He's an experienced pastor. He pastored for 15 years. He's an RTS professor and has been for another 15 years. He continues to write and to publish and to study and research. He's internationally known. And he's devoted his whole life to this book. This was Nicodemus. That's Nicodemus. The teacher of Israel. So imagine if an unknown person showed up in the worship class that I was in and said, Dr. Duncan, you actually don't know the very first thing about this. I know you're the chancellor of RTS and you've taught generations of pastors, but you don't know anything about this. The person who's saying these things would either be delusional or inspired. And this is what Nicodemus is facing as well. Jesus tells this great and learned man, the teacher of Israel, the chancellor of all the seminary of Israel, the president of the Bible college of Israel, or whatever title you want to give him, the teacher of Israel. This recognized authority and master of theology. He says, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things. And the implication is obvious that Nicodemus should have understood these things. He should have known that the new birth was required to know God. That the Spirit must change a man if he is to know God. Again, John Calvin says this doctrine ought to have not been unknown even to the lowest class of beginners. And yet was often the case in Israel's history that the masters and the teachers, the theologians, the priests, didn't know God's Word. They did not understand God. They had no idea. The blind were literally leading the blind. And the Scriptures are full of the doctrine of regeneration. Deuteronomy 30, Psalm 51, Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, which we studied last week. Some would even argue Genesis chapter 1. And Jesus rebukes him. This isn't a gentle rebuke. This is a sharp rebuke. You're the teacher of Israel. You should know these things. And he continues in verse 11, Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of what we have seen. This, this rebuke continues. This is the third time that Jesus has said to him, truly, truly. This is emphatic. He's telling him absolute truth. Of course, everything that Jesus said is absolutely true, but Nicodemus did not believe in Christ at this time. And he's telling him with great authority, truly, truly, this is right. 
It's interesting, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they were amazed at Jesus because He taught as one who had authority, is what John or Matthew tells us. This is not how the rabbis or the Pharisees would teach at all. The way Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is not their method of teaching. Their method, we've discussed it before, was more, more of a debate. Well, the Scriptures here say this thing, and the Scriptures here say this thing. If we take this, this uh, Scripture, then we should deduce this from it. But then we could also take this Scripture and deduce it, this from it. And then this Scripture also might be used to define this and this. And this might mean this, and it could mean this. Everything was often very uncertain. This was the style of teaching. And this was not Jesus' style of teaching at all. Jesus came as a prophet, priest, and king saying, Truly, truly, this is true. He says, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we... Who's the we? Who is Jesus talking about? We speak of what we know. Probably He's referring to all the prophets that have come before Him. Every prophet who's spoken truth before Him. And He's identified Himself with these people throughout His parables as well. We speak of what we know. Jesus is, of course the prophet who was foretold to replace Moses eventually. The prophet. He's speaking of what He knows, but you do not receive our testimony. Again, Jesus has transitioned from personal pronouns to, to pronouns that are plural. This is, but you all do not receive our testimony. Y'all don't receive our testimony. John has already warned us that this would happen throughout this Gospel. You remember the prologue is like a preview of the whole Gospel. And John's already told us in chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. This is not only directed at Nicodemus, this is a plural. The whole people of Israel, with very few exceptions, rejected Christ in His earthly ministry. And the attitude of Nicodemus doesn't surprise Jesus at all. He knows all men. And yet what I think is wonderful is that Jesus is patient in His instruction. He, he continues to show the truth to Nicodemus. He continues to push Nicodemus to see the truth. He's patient with him. He's firm. And truly, much has been given to Nicodemus and much is required of Nicodemus. And he's, he's rebuked for his blindness and his unbelief. But he still continues to patiently instruct this prideful man with the basics of faith. And that's what he says in verse 12. I've told you these earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Earthly things, things related to the human condition, things, things that are basic to our salvation by grace through the Spirit. He says, I've told you these very elementary truths about the new birth, which you should have already known. There's nothing difficult about this basic truth. It's in the Scriptures. And if I tell you the basics and you don't believe, how can I teach you greater truths? Heavenly things. Things concerning the mystery of the Gospel. And yet He does anyway. So Nicodemus is the one who has potential authority as a teacher, the teacher of Israel. And yet Jesus... He explains His own authority. 
to teach him, to teach him these things, to show him the heavenly things. So the teacher goes to school, and then the second point we see is that Jesus actually has the authority to do the teaching, to do the schooling. He describes his own authority in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus speaks of his authority to teach this master theologian. He makes the point that he has authority to proclaim truth because only he has come down from heaven. No one else has ever ascended to heaven. No one else has ever come down to heaven to teach. Only the Son of Man. This title denotes a couple things, the Son of Man. First, it denotes that Jesus actually came in the flesh. He is literally a Son of Man. But He's also making a divine claim. This is a title used by Daniel when he sees the Messiah coming in glory. Daniel 7.13 reads, I saw in the night visions and beheld with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Nicodemus certainly knew of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. He knew this dream. And he knew this title, the Son of Man. And Jesus is ascribing this title to Himself. He's saying, I am the Son of Man. Nicodemus is not just speaking to another man. And that's the point he's making. The Son of Man and Daniel comes in the clouds of heaven. He comes from heaven. This is the incarnate Son of God that you're speaking to. The Almighty God come to earth. In the prologue, we've seen this. Chapter 1, verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So yes, Jesus can instruct you, Nicodemus. I have authority to cleanse the temple. I have authority to rebuke the Master. I have authority to declare truth. And I have authority to teach the Master Teacher of Israel. I wrote the book, Jesus said. He wrote the book that He taught. And He knew all men. And more than that, He knew His heavenly Father and He knew the Spirit. The Word of God was written by Him and He has complete authority to proclaim the truth therein. And He declares heavenly things to Nicodemus anyway. I think it's, it's important to remember too that we we might look at this and, and think to ourselves, I wish I wish I had been there. I mean, I do feel that way as well. I wish I could have heard Jesus teaching Nicodemus and, and preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I wish I had had that opportunity to hear the Word of God. But the Word of God is speaking the words of Christ to you every day that you hear the Word of God, that you read the Word of God. Christ is speaking truth into your life. That's why our worship service is centered on God's Word. We choose not to have a man-centered service. 
a man-centered worship service. I put worship service in quotes, I guess, when it's man-centered. A service desiring your own needs to be met. A service where your own ears are tickled. A service that's meant primarily for your entertainment that you might leave feeling really good. No, this is a God-centered service. We strive to glorify God, to worship God, to honor the Word of God. We pray the Word. We preach the Word. We sing the Word. We proclaim it and read it. And in the sacraments, we see it. The Word of God guides our worship. And it is eternal truth of the Creator. And He has perfect authority to speak into your life as well. So we see that Nicodemus bristled at Jesus' instruction. We see that Jesus continues to instruct Nicodemus and show them that He does have authority to speak to him. And now begins the third point to reveal the central truth, really, of all the Scriptures. And that's the redemption that we have in Christ. Jesus is preaching a sermon, if you will, to Nicodemus. And it was a mystery. It was a mystery to Nicodemus. Indeed, it seems that it was a mystery to most everyone. Paul seems to revel in this mystery. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Romans 16. Just flip a little bit to the right. Romans chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 16. Let's look at verse 25. Remember, Romans is the great theological defense of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the end of this letter, verse 25, Paul says, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says that the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages was Christ. This mystery is beginning to be revealed to Nicodemus on this very night. Jesus tells him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, the theological professor of Israel, likely never considered that the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness had anything to do with His Messiah. The Jewish Messiah. Or that this would have anything to do with being in the kingdom of God. Or the salvation of mankind. Or salvation of the Jews. And yet, it was central to the message of the Gospel. The serpent being lifted up in the wilderness pointed directly to the redemptive work of God in the world. But no one expected that the Messiah would come and be lifted up. 
to die on a cross. What they expected was the Messiah to show up and lead a successful rebellion against the Romans. Maybe to be some kind of military leader who would, who would use small stones and destroy giants as David, their, their great king, did. Defeating all the, the enemies of Israel. This was the Superman Messiah that was hoped for. A Messiah who would be so politically powerful and strong and victorious and smite all of the enemies of Israel. And yet God's gospel, John's Gospel shows that Jesus explodes this whole paradigm. The incarnate Word of God came and was born in a manger. It wasn't announced to anyone except the poorest shepherds in the field. He was the incarnate Son of God in the first century. And He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to do something more lasting and more powerful than to defeat the Romans. The Roman Empire at the time was great. Now we don't think about the Roman Empire at all, do we? Unless you're in school and studying Roman history. This empire in the big spectrum of human life is a piddly little kingdom that's forgotten. We should also remember that for our own lives when you look out and you see, oh, this is such a threat and this country looks so dangerous and our own government is so horrible. I don't know how this country would survive this or that. Do you realize that all the nations of the earth are nothing before God? He accomplishes everything He determines and He uses whatever authority He's established to do so. And he had established the Roman government for a particular purpose. And he used them for their purpose. And then they ended. Jesus was not coming to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom as Nicodemus was learning. And it was not something that could be created by man, nor could it be hindered or stopped by any man. It was the kingdom of God. And it was built upon the sacrifice of the Savior, Messiah. So he tells Nicodemus that this kingdom is like Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. We read Numbers 21. The Israelites had grumbled against God, had grumbled against Moses, and God disciplined them with snakes. He brought about justice by using snakes. They were biting people. And people cried out to God. And God told Moses, this is really odd. Seems odd to us, doesn't it? And can you imagine Moses just obeying God? Okay, Father. Okay, God. I'll make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. God told him to make a bronze serpent, a snake, and to put it on a tall pole and lift it up so that if anyone was bit, they could look at the snake. The bronze snake. And be healed. Be healed by the snake? Be healed by the pole? No. They were healed by their faith in God. Their repentance and obedience to God. But what a surprising choice nonetheless. A snake? Snakes all through Scripture are symbols of, of cunning and conniving and even evil. Remember the, the angel of light came disguised as a serpent in the garden and deceived Eve. 
So why would the snake, why would God want a snake to be lifted on the pole? Yes, they were bit by snakes, but certainly He could have lifted a cross? I don't know. Lift something, a snake? Why? Do you know when Christ took your sins upon the cross? Paul says He became a curse for us. He was lifted up for all men to see. And all who look at Him in faith are saved. And just as the venom of a snake, if, you're, if you've ever been bit by a snake, the venom, if it's a deadly snake, it spreads throughout your whole body, eventually killing you. Do you realize that sin has spread through your whole body and soul? And apart from faith in Christ, you also would perish. So the idea that salvation would come to Israel through a suffering Messiah, this is probably something that Nicodemus continued to be shocked by. And to hear now that in Numbers 21, a passage that Nicodemus knew, that the serpent lifted up on a pole has anything to do with this kingdom of God that Rabbi Yeshua is talking about, this would shock him. But the suffering Messiah was also, should not have been a shock. Isaiah 53 discusses the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53, throughout the whole chapter, well, starting in the end of 52, talks about the way that the Messiah would come and be rejected and suffer for His people. It so clearly points to Christ. You know, rabbis, Jewish rabbis today will not read Isaiah 53. They won't teach it. But the fact is that this was all a mystery to Nicodemus and almost all the Jews. What was the mystery exactly? That the Messiah would bring salvation through sacrifice and suffering. That the Messiah was not going to isolate and lift up the Jewish people, but rather add to the Jewish people. Grafting in Gentiles like us into the family of Abraham. That the Messiah's good news was not that the Jews were good with God, but that they were depraved sinners who also could become good with God through faith in Christ. That the kingdom of God was a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom overthrowing empires, but overthrowing the entire system of the world. The Gospel. That's the mystery that was presented to Nicodemus. And we'll continue next week. In the same mystery. Paul loves to talk about this. I've already read Romans 16. I'll conclude with a few Scriptures. This is Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ and His work on earth was a, a, a wonderful mystery that's been revealed, Paul says, in his day. And he felt so privileged to know it. He says also in Ephesians 3, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed 
to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's now been revealed to you, this mystery, by the Spirit. Colossians 1, Paul says, I became, this is verse 20, 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. Do you realize that Nicodemus is, is getting the first preview of this, this wonderful mystery? Colossians 2. He prays that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of His full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you realize that if you know anything about Christ, God has revealed to you a wonderful mystery that for generations people have longed to look into. How privileged are we who have the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet for the Jews, the mystery of the Gospel of Christ caught everyone by surprise, it would seem. Except for a very few. Even His own disciples didn't believe Him. Paul revels in the fact that this mystery was hidden for ages and now revealed to the saints and to the Gentiles. But Nicodemus seems thunderstruck. He just seems dumbfounded. And he's the teacher of Israel. He should know. He'd been taught the truth of the Scriptures his whole life, so he thought. And now Jesus is telling him, truly, truly, you've missed it. And here's the truth. And Nicodemus was incredulous. Jesus says that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is the conclusion. You must also believe. As Nicodemus was given a choice, you have a choice. Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. To be born again by the Spirit and believe in the Son of Man, lifted up as the serpent. Now we don't know exactly when the Holy Spirit circumcised Nicodemus' heart, but most believe that this actually did happen at some time in his life by what we're told about the rest of his life. We don't know when Nicodemus was regenerated. Certainly Jesus is planting seeds at this moment. Do you realize that he's, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus in the Passover feast? And almost exactly three years later, Nicodemus would pull the body of Yeshua off the cross and put him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Three years later, this man whom he's speaking to would be lifted up. And we can only imagine his response if, if he were not regenerate at that moment. Seeing Jesus lifted up, maybe this conversation came to his mind. To see Yeshua lifted up on a cross. And to see all of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin, all these other masters and teachers of Israel shaking their fists at him. And hearing Jesus cry out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometime then or before he realized he did believe in Jesus. And just as the snake bit Israelites in the wilderness looked up at the bronze serpent and were healed, 
So he looked up at his Messiah, lifted up on the cross. He spent a small fortune to bury Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb, the tomb of a rich man carved into rock. But Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. Some of you have lifted 50-pound bags of feed or something else. 75 pounds, that's a lot. The estimated value of 75 pounds of spices in that day is somewhere on the order of one to $200,000. He spent a lot of money to bury Jesus. You see, he was willing to give up everything for Jesus. And tradition is, the historical tradition of Nicodemus, the history we know of his life, was that he did give up everything. Tradition holds that he was cast out of the Sanhedrin, and within a few years he was penniless, and his whole family was in poverty. He was punished for his faith in Christ. You are also called today to believe in Jesus. And this is more than just knowing things about Him, to believe and trust in Him alone. And if you have faith in Him already, to remember the Gospel is for you today. Every day. What does it mean to believe? Well, all through the Scriptures, again, Nicodemus should have known as well. In Deuteronomy 6, God tells His people that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This is belief. And someday you may be afraid to stand up and say that you believe in Jesus. Someday you might be. Maybe this has already happened. Maybe you're afraid to stand up for Jesus because you'll be canceled. Maybe you'll lose your job. I would tell you don't have real faith if you're afraid. And you hide your faith, your supposed faith, because of some fear. Are you afraid that you might be thrown into prison or face some physical harm? So you hide your faith in Christ. It seems impossible today, but who knows what tomorrow brings. Are you ready today to stand up for Christ? This is true faith. It's, it's that your losses on this earth and your crosses that you bear on this earth are not important compared to Jesus Christ. That's real faith. This is the kind of faith that Nicodemus showed. This is the kind of faith that all the apostles had, barring Judas Iscariot. A fair-weather friend of Jesus is not a friend of Jesus. So I would say to you today, determine today to live for Christ in every situation. If you don't have faith in Christ, trust the Son of Man today. Because He's going to come again in the clouds in glory. And once you see Him coming in glory, it is too late. Your time has ended. Your time to believe is over. His life, His law, His word, His example. This should become your life, your law, your word, your example. His name should become your name. That's what Christian means, little Christ. Nothing can come between you and the love of Christ for His own people. So as I issue a warning, I also issue a gentle call. It's a call that is weak in the eyes of the world, but powerful in the economy of God. Jesus Himself says, Come to Me all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take My yoke upon you. 
for I'm gentle and lowly at heart. I call you to come to Jesus Christ today. Put your faith in Christ alone. You've been privileged to know the mystery hidden for ages. Generations of men who wanted to know this truth. And it's been revealed to you. Christ has been lifted up. And you should receive Him in faith. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so grateful to have Your Word. And we're grateful for the obedience of Jesus Christ. We also are so blessed to see His patient instruction of Nicodemus in this passage. Because we know that our own hearts are often filled with an obstinate pride that bristles against any word that might challenge us or cause us to humble ourselves. Indeed, the hearts of all men apart from Christ are filled with pride. It's the defining characteristic of an unregenerate heart. And yet your Holy Spirit will brook no dissent. There will be no pride, no idolatry in the hearts of your own children. We pray that you would increase our faith. That you would comfort our souls. That when we are tempted to despair, we also would look look up and see Christ. That we would run to Christ. We would trust in Christ. And that you would bless the Word of God. As you bless the Word preached to Nicodemus, we pray that you would bless this preached Word to our own souls as well. And we pray this all in the mighty and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.